for the sound of sensation across the nation. Listen to Radio Goodies. Boom. Goodies Pirate Podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. I'm Rob. And I'm Tom. And this is episode 64. Will you still love us? Now we're 64. Good God, 64. 64, yes. And this week we are covering Goodies and Politics, which is the first episode of Series 8. Originally broadcast on the 14th of January, 1980, a Monday at 10 past 8 p.m. Now, I'm going to start off with a comment here and say that Series 8 is actually my personal favourite series of the goodies and contains my two favourite episodes, of which this is one. I wouldn't argue this is the best episode objectively. I think we discussed last week that that's probably euthanasia. But in terms of personal favourite, this is one that is uh, on my top two. Season 8 is a bit of a change in direction for the series and I'll probably make the opening point. We've just watched Euthanasia last week and talked about it. For UK viewers, it was actually over two years between seasons here. So... In some ways, you probably might almost have thought that the goodies weren't coming back, but here but they are. Here they are. Tom, what did you think of goodies and politics? It, it's a good episode. It's enjoyable in parts. I think there's better episodes in this season to come along uh, next week and uh, in a few more weeks' time. But yeah, quite enjoyable. Rob? Yes, up until the bit where they do their It's a Knockout rip-off, I thought this was pretty good. I mean, I don't mind that political links back to that era and um, yeah I thought it's, it was a good well written episode it's got probably the most memorable scene for me in it but uh, we'll talk about that later Richard your top thoughts much like Rob I really enjoyed probably the first about 20 minutes I, I think the last sequence yeah that probably did drag a bit for me it's one I think that's got better probably more as I've aged <laughs> and I can appreciate the jokes in it more I think Series 8, I remember watching that when I was a kid and not really getting a lot out of most of it. But now you're older and you can get the humour in it. Like you, I think this is a great season. And I think this is another episode that very much proves what we've been saying for a while now, that the more you get and appreciate what they're referencing, the better the episode is overall. Well, they've really moved, probably, and this, this is really a discussion for a bit later, but they have now really moved more into parody, really. If you look at the content of this season, it's more their version of... Yes. Whatever. All right, so we go to the episode which opens with two ads. Yay! <laughs> bit of a callback, isn't it? A bit of a callback. First time since string. Yes. So the first ad has the gentleman eating the chocolate bar, where we assume it is, doing the whole, it's crunchy, it's chewy, it's crunchy and chewy. It's, it's disgusting. It's soggy. <laughs> it's disgusting. Yes, it, it is a send-up of an ad for a Cadbury's double-decker chocolate. Mm. Uh, yes. is the ad. But it, it actually morphs into an ad about keeping Britain tidy. Yes, because he goes and throws up in a bin and then the tagline is keep Britain tidy. And you'll notice this is the craft that Graham brings to it. When he turns around and walks away from the camera, he doesn't walk directly to the bin, he walks just to adjacent to the bin and that enables him to do that physical comedy bit of just lunging towards it. <laughs> so that's Graham actually impersonating Willie Rushton, who he was working on, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue with, who was Tim's partner on that radio game show as well. Just a bit of trivia. Yeah. Okay. And the second ad involves a gentleman walking into a bank. The lady behind the counter just says, I'm sorry, Mr. Frost, I can't do that. And then he opens, opens the jacket. The back, yeah. And of course, she then looks down and says, oh, that'll do nicely. 
and it then turns out to be an ad for American Express. Yes, and the tagline is, says more about you than cash ever can. <laughs> <laughs> Partly obscured by the laughter, but that's the tagline. So we then have Tim saying, no, turn off the television, there's more programming now, that ruins the commercials. Which just goes to show that they're watching ITV and not the BBC. <laughs> yes! <laughs> and of course, those ads are made by Graham's advertising agency. Yes. It then leads into a political debate where Tim is talking about how Mrs Thatcher's done so much for the advertising industry and the business in general because she stands up for the man with the small firm. Small firm what? (laughs) (laughs) It leads to Tim calling Bill a worker and giving the game away. At one point, Tim points to a poster of Che Guevara and refers to him as David Essex. Yes. (laughs) David Essex, of course played the role of Shay in the first West End performance of Evita in 1978 <laughs> with uh, Elaine Page. He though wasn't on the concept album in 1976 where the role was played by Colm Wilkinson, who was more associated today with Les Miserables and Judy Covington. And that, of course, sets up that this episode is going to be all about Margaret Thatcher and Evita and a mashup <laughs> thereof. Yes, after they've made the Jane Fonda jokes. Yes, well, they make a number of Vanessa Redgrave and Jane Fonda jokes, and they very much are a bit of a theme throughout the episode as well in terms of Bill's politics. Um, yes, including Tim having having the same Jane Fonda picture with Margaret Thatcher's face on it. Yes. Interesting that Hanoi Jane is very much Bill's idol at this point, because uh, by the 80s she was not as well regarded, although she was very good in the newsroom. Yes. It's interesting that given that two years have elapsed, the politics, as in Britain, on the show have become a little bit more harder edged, Mm. would you say? I think so. Which would probably mirror what was going on in the country at that time. We then get a news item, and we'll touch on the presenter in a moment, but it tells us that because of a discovery of a fantastic loophole in the tax laws, the Prime Minister has retired to the Bahamas, and the whole Parliament has voted themselves a massive pay rise and gone with them. As a result, there is no government. Yes, which is, of course, a return appearance from Corbett Woodall. Yay. And we'll talk more about him when we get to our tropes. Because there is no government and Mrs Thatcher's gone, the striking workers have gone back to work. <laughs> <laughs> and the British pound has suddenly shot up in value. <laughs> the phone then rings and there's a woman's voice on the end after Bill answers it. And tells her to belt up you old gas bag. <laughs> yes, and says to Tim, oh, it's for you. It's the Queen. <laughs> Leading to a moment of panic. Interestingly, though, this is a rare occasion where the goodies are actually hired to do something. In this case, the Queen Queen has hired them to form a new government. Yes, or be beheaded. Yes. (laughs) I do love Tim on the phone at that point doing that. Oh, I know, I know. Mrs. Slocum. Very Mrs. Slocum. Yes. And then goes down the scone line. Yes, Yes, of course, we get a scone scone (laughs) gag. One of two. Yes. So in order to become Prime Minister, Tim seeks out the help of Graham and his advertising agency, Snatchy and Snatchy. (laughs) Obviously a reference to Saatchi and Saatchi, who famously did the Conservative Party's election ads for the 1979 election when Mrs Thatcher was brought into power. Graham, we now see, sitting in his office, drawing 80s-style pinstripes onto his shirt. (laughs) I I don't know why I love that gag so much, but I just do. (laughs) <laughs> Tim Brooke Taylor walks in dressed as Margaret Thatcher. Yes, and Graham initially thinks she's the real Margaret Thatcher. Yes. Oh, you've forgotten the voice. 
Yeah, now it seems to allude here that either there's been something extremely shady going on or that he's actually been having an affair with Margaret Thatcher. Uh, that's the way I took it because Tim says, I want you to do for me what you did for Margaret Thatcher. To which Graham says, how do you find out about that? Dennis doesn't know, does he? Uh, well, the Sunday papers. <laughs> yes. So I don't think it was alluding. I think it was pretty much saying. <laughs> uh, which, yeah, is an interesting choice. But no, Tim wants Graham to uh, make him the Prime Minister. We then have a look at Margaret Thatcher's uh, TV commercials as made by Graham. <laughs> which are just weird. Yeah, <laughs> it's a rip-off of a lager ad. Yes. Basically put out the fire. Ah, okay. I don't know where that footage of her sampling the tea or whatever. That is actually from the 79 campaign. Okay. It, it was one of the photo opportunities. And it's often shown in documentaries as being one of the very early examples of the staged photo opportunity from the campaign. Including her blanching at the end of the taste of it. Yes, yes. <laughs> More sugar, please. <laughs> I will also note here a small factual error. Graham says they got a majority of 35. It was actually 44. Smoke pedantic git. <laughs> <laughs> Bill arrives in saying that he is now the candidate for Prime Minister for the Workers' Revolutionary Party. Not a Workers' Revolutionary Party, but THE <laughs> Workers' Revolutionary Party, or TWERP. <laughs> now, Bill at this point is dressed as Vanessa Redgrave in protest gear, with the wig and the glasses, and attempting to stand on his stilts. Now, is the joke that he couldn't stand on them, oh. or is it just him trying an aptly? Oh, I, I, I got thought it was an ad-lib, that clearly he's trying to stand on the stilts. Not very successfully, I admit, but... <laughs> well, it gets to the point where Tim actually has to help him. Yeah, he's actually he's bracing him, yes. Which actually, his inability to do it makes that sequence even funnier. There is one of the great jokes there before Bill comes in, where Graham says to him, now you do understand that as part of this campaign, you're going to have to talk to real people. What? You, you mean workers? <laughs> yes. And you're going to have to shake their hand. <laughs> no, no, I can't, I can't. He says, no, you must, you must. Why don't we get the most grubby, grotty, snivelling little worker that we can find? <laughs> they then start talking about their competing advertising campaigns. So Tim's as Thatcher, he talks about how at birth, we're divided into nice people and workers. <laughs> then goes on to talk about the policy of having a workers' cull. Was <laughs> that date again? It was every glorious August the 12th. Yes. Which apparently is the opening of the grouse shooting season. <laughs> and talks about spanking union leaders and generally lots of spanking for everyone. And no NHS. <laughs> That's right. You can save money by operating on yourselves. <laughs> In contrast, Bill starts off by selling the Queen to Disneyland. Bye. <laughs> Disbanding the army and buying a white flag. <laughs> Abolishing everything posh. Now, he makes here that everybody will have a chance to turn down an Oscar. You'll get a free OBE, you get to make one film a year with Joan Fonda and to turn down an Oscar. Now, the footage there is of him dressed as Vanessa Redgrave breaking an Oscar. Now, yes. Redgrave won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for the movie Julia in 1978 in which Jane Fonda was nominated for Best Actress and lost. Mm. And there was a lot of talk about that being very political because there was a lot of... Mm. Uh, at this point, both Redgrave and Fonda were very much campaigning for certain issues in Palestine, which Redgrave actually mentioned in her Oscar speech to booze from the audience. And Fonda then didn't win one, and it was quite controversial at the time. But I couldn't find anything about either of them actually turning down an Oscar. You would imagine they probably wouldn't turn it down just for the sake of being able to get up there and use it as a platform. Well, you would think so. Mm. So I'm not quite sure where that joke came from. 
Graham then unveils the truth about campaign advertising. It's not based on politics, it's based on images. Yes, so they talk about uh, Dennis Healy. Yes, prices and income policy versus... Big bushy eyebrows. <laughs> yes, uh, Edward Heath, champion of the common market. Big white teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Enoch Powell, immigration control. Evil moustache and big googly eyes. <laughs> so what we're saying is if you combine the assets of Healy, Heath and Powell together, you would have the perfect winner. Yes, but only at Crafts. <laughs> <laughs> at which point, Bill has decided that he's not going to be part of all this. He's going to go and retire from politics and burn his stilts. Yes. Tim, however, goes off to find the perfect image, at which point Graham does use the line, go and make yourself up, eyes, hair, teeth, figure, etc., which is a line from a song from Evita. <laughs> uh, eyes, hair, teeth, figure. It's the scene where they convert um, Perron's wife from ordinary country girl to, you know, mother of the nation. Yes. Okay. Bill, however, comes back as Che. Yes. It could be Che Nu. It could be. Che. Is it all about? <laughs> Shane Gang. <laughs> Shakespeare Charlie. Right. Or Shane No More. <laughs> After he initially thinks he's Tim. But... Yes. <laughs> we then get the music building up, and when they, as they're wondering what Tim could possibly have that would be Bill. And he walks out dressed as Evita. Yes, or Timita. <laughs> yes. Uh, so worth just mentioning for anyone who's not aware, Evita was, of course, an Andrew Lloyd Webber, Tim Rice musical. First released as an album in 1976, but it had the West End in 1978 and was a very big hit for them. And it was basically all about the life of Ava Duarte Perón, who was the wife of Argentinian dictator, Elected dictator, shall we say. Fatherly from, dictator? Yes, from the uh, 40s and 50s in Argentina. And Evita, of course, was his wife, who uh, wanted to run as vice president, but died in her early 30s before she could. Yes, she had cancer from memory. She did, yes. But yeah, it looked very big musical at the time. And Tim is dressed as her. Not as Miss Piggy. <laughs> <laughs> or indeed, you've heard of the Iron Lady. Here's the tin transvestite. We then go to the party politicals. Now, again, I think this is a comment on the fact that by 1980, party politicals, which had always up until then just been a leader or a frontbencher, just spoke to camera for five minutes and explained policy, were now actually being dressed up more and more in a showbizy sort of way, and sort of culminating in the 87 election with Kenneth the movie. But we're not quite there yet, but that, that was sort of, you know, the big, seems the big turning point for politics. But we're certainly seeing it all being splashed up and jazzed up. So it starts off with a little bit of the, uh, the interview with uh, Tibita. There's nothing a man can do that a woman can't. Maybe Except what? for one thing. <laughs> not not <laughs> in my case. <laughs> <laughs> now, this, of course, then leads to what I think is probably the greatest pun in the series. Uh, <laughs> yes, where the two ladies, Marge and Tina, are working. <laughs> Common, ordinary people in their places of work. <laughs> And they start to cry because they're so worried that Tamita won't be elected to the position of responsibility she so duly deserves. At which point Tim walks the in. The music swells. Yes. Tamita walks in and basically to the music of Don't Cry For Me Argentina does do Don't Cry For Me Marge and Tina. <laughs> um, Don't Cry For Me Argentina obviously being the big showstopper from the start of the second act of Evita. 
I have just very strong memories of seeing this when I was a boy, and I, I obviously heard the music, and yeah. it, it was all over the place, I think, at that time, so... It's all over the radio here. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, and the thing that I love as well, we've talked often about all the audience participation, is as Tim starts to sing, you can hear the audience putting it together and it goes from the, <laughs> oh, and then it just starts laughing. Yeah. <laughs> it is very, very funny. I'll just say, Graham probably wrote that joke. Mm. <laughs> it's just got his footprints all over it. Mm. So, of course, we're now at election night. Or the election night special with David Dimbleboom, <laughs> who is sitting at the host desk eating a full dinner. Apparently, he'd been seen during the previous campaign eating a Mars bar at one point during the evening. Yes, yes, he had. It was actually during the coverage of the '79 election. Yes. So David Dimbleby has been a staple of hosting British elections. 2015 was supposed to be his final one, but he ended up doing 2017 as well. So yeah, he has actually been anchoring British political election coverage for over 40 years. He thought he was a bastion of British current affairs then, he's got 40 years on it now. Sure. He also hosts Question Time, which is a big current affairs program over there. Yes. He's actually, he turns 80 next year. Wow. So they might wheel him out one more time. And I think his old man had been a political commentator prior to that, hadn't he? Or at least a presenter. He was a presenter. He uh, narrated the Queen's coronation. Yes. He's the one that did all the hushed silence to send yes. on the Abbey. Richard Dimbleblum. <laughs> and yes, he was caught eating a Mars bar during one of the life crosses in the campaign, so I think that's what that's a reference to. And the escalating gag through that is, is really well done. Yes. It's, it's a, a trademark of the goodies where they sort of do that sort of thing. The elaborate, more elaborate dinner, and then finally at the end of it, he gets into bed with his teddy bear. <laughs> is, that, is that sooty and or sweet? I think it might be sooty. Night-night. <laughs> yeah, there, there is a quick cutaway, just quickly, to the panel of judges. One of which is Tony Hatch, who we encountered as Tony Bitch in high pressure. Yes, there's a mention that David Frost is all the way over in New York, so hopefully we won't be hearing from him. <laughs> yes. And the quick cut to Robin Day. Robin Day, again, actually was a staple of British election coverage at that point. He would sit sort of off at a little corner of the studio, and when there weren't any results, he would interview one of the politicians. Okay. But they only do a very quick cross. Now, it doesn't take a long to count the votes because... There's only been one vote, each of them. <laughs> yes, the nation are so entranced by the campaign, they've stayed at home to watch it instead of going out to vote. Yes, so Bill gets one vote and Tim gets one vote. And demand a recount. Yes. Several times. <laughs> Unfortunately, they have to form a coalition government, <laughs> which hadn't been seen in Britain for a very long time at that point. The war, really? Uh, yeah, the war. There was the Lib Lab Pact in the previous parliament where the Liberals had supported the Labour Party, but they never entered the coalition. We would see one until 2010. And of course, you know that it's a coalition because they've got their legs tied together. <laughs> now, Graham, of course, has the idea of televising Parliament. But of course, to make it more interesting so people will watch, he turns it into a series of game shows. So it's interesting, at this point, much like in Australia, Parliament actually couldn't be televised or broadcast. So what they'll do is just show audio footage from Parliament with somebody's photo, still photo over the top of it, which was very, very tedious. So there were long talks about this. Indeed, there's an episode of Yes Minister about three years later where it's actually a plot point that maybe if the BBC doesn't bend to the government's will, ITV will be given the contract to broadcast Parliament. So it was going on for quite a while. But Graham, of course, being Graham, televises it as a series of game shows. The first one is a knockoff. They call it the immigration game on screen, but it's, it's the generation game. And Graham is done up as a chap called Larry Grayson, who was the host. And that's obviously the bit where they've got the immigrants coming yeah. through and they're, they're trying to put the hats on. Yeah, them. I thought it must be the generation game, but I've always thought of that as being hosted by um, Bruce Forsyth. 
Because Bruce Forsyth through the 80s and 90s... Yes, well, that's right. well that was probably when they lured him to ITV from the BBC. Yeah. Because okay. he was one of their big signings around the time they got the goodies. Sale of the Century is the next one, where you can win various different bits of defence equipment. Yes, uh, they also do Call My Bluff. Yes. Which has Graham as both compare and as one of the panellists. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good take on it as well. Yes, and then the final one is Blankety Blanks. Yes, with Graham playing... Terry Wogan. Yes, complete with Terry Wogan's microphone, which was most famous for the running gag that whenever Kenny Everett went on the show, he would break it in, <laughs> in, in various more staged and elaborate ways. But yeah, look, that's, that's very, very good. You know, when Valerie Giscard Stang fell off the Oiffel Tower, he landed on his blank. <laughs> yeah, now there is a cut line here because it ends with Tim saying he landed on his dignity, but I changed it to his bum. Now, the scene cuts there, there was originally filmed, they go down to Bill and ask Bill what he thinks, and he wrote something that was too obscene even to show on screen, and that's when the UN all start getting upset. Ah! Yeah. I, I didn't think it was a little bit of a leap. Yeah. Worth mentioning that Valerie Giscard d'Estaing was the president of France at the time. Mm. Yes, well, we meet all of them, I think, in a we few do. minutes. We but... do. <laughs> this leads to war, so we then get the Prime Minister's announcing the start of war, which is Bill and Tim talking in unison, which is very well done. It's interesting that Tim seems to have either memorised the script or is looking at a teleprompter, whereas Bill is actually looking more down at the script in front of him. So, anyway. And Bill, I think, is just half a beat behind Tim on some of the gestures as well. But it still works very, very well, and I'm sure if you were watching it just on broadcast, not looking at it as intently as we are, (laughs) it would work well. So we then get to Guerre Sans Frontières. Which takes us through the last third of the episode. Well, I guess, look, there are obviously jokes in there about what was happening in Europe. I mean, you have the Butter Mountain, which which was obviously a dockpile uh, due to the price fixing. You also have the Wine Lake. There's reference to the Berlin Wall. Mm. They launched the nuclear attack, which I think the Soviets were starting to stockpile weapons at that time, and they were starting to build up uh, nuclear stockpiles in Europe as a counter. Yes. That, that would be around that time, I think. It, it is. All the various people representing their countries are leaders of government. So you've got Valerie Giscard-Stang, who was the Gaullist president of France. You've got Helmut Schmidt, who was the Social Democratic Chancellor of Germany at the time, neither of whom was very well predisposed to Britain, particularly Mrs Thatcher. Helmut Schmidt and Thatcher famously couldn't stand each other. Oh, well, he was basically the leader of Europe when she was asking for the massive rebate cut, so, yeah, he was the sort of de facto leader of Europe at the time, yeah. Right, so that would be why Germany win the end of the... I thought it was just a reference to the fact that they lost the World Wars, so (laughs) it was ironic that they won. We'll give them this one. (laughs) Should we mention what Guerre Sans Frontier was? The game show is Jeux Sans Frontier, and what they do is Guerre Sans Frontier. It's basically an international version of It's a Knockout, isn't it? Yeah. More more correctly, It's a Knockout is the Australianised or Britishised version of what originally was Jeux Sans Frontier. Right. So it is a franchise, yes. Okay. And because certain uh, countries aren't very good at international languages, it was simplified to It's a Knockout for (laughs) for us and Britain. But, of course, it allows Grind to do his Eddie Waring impression. <laughs> At length. Yes. There's also, obviously, the bloke who's just the cardboard <laughs> cutout laughing hysterically. Now, that's uh, his name was Stuart Hall, and that apparently was his thing. He would just laugh hysterically all the way through, but probably the less said about him, the better. So at one point, Eddie Waring tells us that Great Britain is playing the Joker. <laughs> so who's on the Joker card? Because I couldn't recognise it this time. Apparently it's Cyril Smith, who was a Liberal MP, and he was for Rochdale, so up around Manchester. Fair enough. Who apparently was known for his quite uh, laid-back and somewhat jovial approach to politics. 
Oh, he was doing well if he was a Liberal MP in 1980, because 79 is the post-Thorpe election where famously the Liberal Party could fit in the back of a minicamp. <laughs> Look, I thought the game show stuff at the end is quite funny. It doesn't quite outstate Vulcan, but it gets close. You get some funny gags there. You get a bit of ethnic stereotyping. Probably not as bad as they've done. Yeah, probably not as bad as Goodies in the Beanstalk, for example. And it all ends with a nice slow-motion shot of them breaking the balloons as Land of Hope and Glory swells. And then finishing the game, finding everyone else is gone. <laughs> Great Britain, one, one point. <laughs> but they played the Joker, it should have been two. <laughs> and yet, so Eddie Waring comes over to tell them that they have, of course, lost world domination, but they'll be winning. And not another wooden spoon. But if you look over there, yes. and there's Margaret Thatcher. She's back. She's back. Cue credits. <laughs> I really enjoyed this episode. It resonates with me because it has both politics and musicals, two of my personal interests. But I think it's really good. Again, as you alluded to last week, Rob, you see a very good through line through the whole thing that does hold together, I think, very, very well. It's actually very well written. It's very intelligent. Once again, there's just reference after reference. There's a couple of layers to a lot of it. I think it's really good goodies. I think it's the goodies at their best. And I think, again, you see the three goodies characters. Although they're all twisted a bit to suit the plot, you know, Tim is Tim, Bill is Bill, and Graham is Graham. Mm. And I think that's really good yeah. to see. Absolutely. Any other comments on the episode? One note I did have, actually, when Bill goes over to the corner of his office right at the start, to Bill's bit, you notice he's got what seems to be a small spirits bar set up on the wall there with three bottles of spirits, one of which says morning coffee. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the new set, of course. Yes, and well, that's true, actually. They've rejigged the goodies office again. Yeah. Even more dramatically this time. Whilst it's still basically there, you've got a lot happening. You know, there's more of the computer against the wall. Very 1980s streamlined. Mm. The computer has been changed at this point, hasn't it? It doesn't look like the same prop. Yeah. No, it's, it's not. And actually, what they show out of the windows changes in the last couple of years as well. Because if you look at the Series 7 episodes within the office, it's actually showing like a skyline. So it actually inferences yeah. that they're clearly some like they're in an apartment some way above the ground. Well, you can see St Paul's Cathedral, the dome. Mm. Uh, I was looking at that, so whether you can actually do that from Cricklewood, I'm not entirely sure, but... (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll move on to our regular segments then. Tropes and firsts. Dan Frost. Eddie Waring. Nicholas Parsons. Cross-dressing. Scones versus scones. Actually, twice. Yes, Land of Hope and Glory. Mm -hmm. The start of Robin Day. Well, actually, I was going to say, yes, we see Robin Yad next week, so... Bit of mild ethnic stereotyping. <laughs> Very much. Jane Fonda joke from yeah. uh, Carrier from Euthanasia. And Vanessa Redgrave, I think she's been mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was in high pressure. I scrubbed that, so. <laughs> yes. But, of course, probably the big one is Corbett Woodall. Comes back as the newsreader. This is sadly, and again, we're now at a point where we're doing last. This is sadly his last appearance in the series. So we should probably spend a minute talking about Corbett Woodall, who... Uh, Matthew K. Sharp, in one of his early works on the goodies, referred to as the fourth goodie. Mm. And no, not without some reason, he is in a lot of episodes. Yeah, he's in nine, eight or nine. He was actually a BBC newsreader. That's where he initially came from, and he encountered the goodies after he'd left that. Yes, he, he was a BBC newsreader, and if you look at a lot of his acting work where he appears in other shows, it is really as a newsreader or a similar sort of character. There's actually not a lot of information around about him he did write an autobiography which is a book called a disjointed life it doesn't actually say anything much about his early life 
really. He clearly came from a family with money because he went to Eton. He was at Eton with Lord Snowden. His start in the industry, so to speak, came, he emigrated to New Zealand in 1954. He says this is due to having exhausted his family's patience. So I got the impression he was maybe the black sheep of the family. But he had no job when he arrived, so he pretty much walked into Radio New Zealand and asked for an audition, which he was given and passed, and went to work in Radio New Zealand, in rural radio, and then in Wellington. He then returned to England in the early 60s, and again, basically just walked into the BBC, said, well, I worked in Radio New Zealand, I want a job. They put him on outside broadcasts. He was sort of like a production manager on there, but even he admitted he wasn't very good. And I think in the time-honoured tradition of just moving the problem somewhere else, (laughs) the director there pushed him over to BBC Radio. So he worked as a radio announcer for many years. There is an anecdote. He used to do a lot of the early morning, like the the 6am news. And because it was deemed too early for somebody to have to come in from their home, they actually had a room in a hotel across the road that they reserved purely for the radio broadcasters to sleep in. And one morning he woke up at about 5 to 6, walked across the road in his pyjamas and dressing gown, (laughs) did the news, and then went back home to get dressed before anybody else came in. (laughs) He then gradually progressed and he moved to one of the BBC's four main news presenters alongside Michael Aspel, Richard Baker and Robert Dougal. Um, that really made him a household name pretty much because he was beamed into houses across Britain. What sort of era are we talking now? So we're talking sort of mid-60s. Yep. He was sacked by the BBC in 1967. They decided three newsreaders were enough so he went freelance and he just worked for BBC, ITV, whoever, just presenting whatever. He then became suddenly fashionable again because he accidentally appeared in Yoko Ono's film Number 4, which is basically, I think, about an hour of just filming people's backsides. (laughs) Yes, the news found out about it, and he got a lot of work off the back of that. He was suddenly fashionable again. Backside of that? (laughs) Yeah, poor man. Unfortunately, in 1968, he was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, and he had several very difficult years where he couldn't work, and he had to learn to rebuild his life and cope with the disease, and it really was a thing that, that affected the rest of his life. This is when he starts doing a lot of like small acting parts. And he does say he was extremely grateful to the goodies for writing him bits in their episodes. He had a number of instances where it would flare up and he wasn't able to take them. I suspect probably a couple of the Series 7 ones. I think Scout Rageous, really, there's a thing that they use Michael Barrett, but really that you, you think that's sort of screaming out for Corbett Woodall yeah. to do the announcement about the Scouts. There is the thing, he had periods where he couldn't walk, uh, so the bit where he stuck on the rolling desk in Beanstalk he was actually trapped behind that desk as it takes off down the road (laughs) and he said well basically it just had to wait until it hit the wall (laughs) and then see what happened he then in his later life just quickly just to finish off he had a big reappraisal of his life in the mid 70s and he decided that really because he was clearly disabled now because of his disease and disability support really wasn't a thing he actually approached Lord Snowden who at the time was known for his work with the disabled about doing a documentary series programming about disability and how it's how people live with disabilities they put together a format and approached the BBC only to find the BBC were doing something similar and Woodall actually managed to get himself installed as the presenter it was a series called contact it went for 10 episodes he said it really only scratched the surface uh, issues affecting like the physically disabled like ability work assistance treatment etc but he spent his last year's raising awareness of rheumatoid arthritis and how to live with the disease, which actually is a lot of his book, is actually how he coped with the disease, not really about his life. But sadly, he died not all that long after this went out. He died in 1982, poor man. And you can see, actually, if you look at him in politics, you can see he's visibly aged a bit. Mm-hmm. Okay, what couldn't they get away with today? Well, it wasn't cut here. 
uh, the nights I have. I, I don't believe the OBC edited this at all. Yeah, I had nothing that I would have had a problem with. No, no. Okay, time then for our favourite gags. I don't have anything particular. I just really enjoyed Graham impersonating everybody else. <laughs> you know, he had such a good time. He did Robin Day, he did Frank Muir, Robert Robinson, Terry Wogan, Eddie Waring. All of the impersonations were down pat. Richard? Well, it's kind of hard to go past the, the main joke in the episode, <laughs> but I'm actually going to go for the bit with Tim not being able to interact with the workers. Rob? Well, clearly the Argentina thing still tickles my fancy after 40 years, but it's the scene of Bill soaring off his own leg. That's <laughs> an example of uh, finding savings in health funding. Yeah, very funny. I'm going to go for the very first appearance of Tomita where the music swells, we're waiting to see what Tim comes out of, and it's just so out of what we expected. But it's uh, really, really funny. But no, I really enjoyed this episode, and I think it gets the season off to a really good start. Which brings us very nicely to where is the series now, which is our regular look at the start of every series of where the goodies are at this point in the saga. This, of course, being Series 8, is their final BBC series, and their second last series overall. As we said at the top of the episode, it's been just over two years since uh, we saw the last episode in Earth and Asia. Earth and Asia was late 1977. The goodies themselves decided that they wanted to take 1978 off as they felt, look, they were tired, they wanted to explore other projects and really needed to recharge. They all often did different things for Tim and Graham. It actually meant a reasonable run in a stage show called The Unvarnished Truth, which went around regional Britain and then had a run on the West End. Bill did some musical projects and then one of the ITV channels got into Saturday morning television, a show called The Saturday Banana, which was that particular ITV area's answer to Tiz Was and The Swap Shop, which were the other two big ones at the time. Saturday Banana was in some ways I think viewed as the poor relation to the other two, didn't really have a lot of support or funding behind it and I think that the common perception seems to be it was really Bill holding the whole thing together. Of course, during this, they released the Beastly Record. They're also doing, I'm sorry I haven't a clue, those recordings are still continuing. This is also when they do their Mickey Mouse pressing, yes, etc. And some of the interviews they gave, one of the questions I regularly asked during those is, is the goodies coming back onto television? And they said, oh yes, 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 we'll be back next year. Now apparently the story goes that in late 1978, the BBC issued Graham and Bill contracts to write some new episodes and then came back to discover that Bill and Graham hadn't even seen the contracts, let alone signed them. So they had to go away and be completely redrawn, which meant they then had to push the series back further. They were actually originally contracted to do seven episodes. They deliver the seven scripts, and they're all set to film. They actually go and do the pre-filming for a lot of the episodes, and of course, just about the time they start to move into the studio, television in Britain goes through another round of industrial action, which of course meant everything had to be rejected. The seven episodes for the season are the six we see originally ended with a studio-bound episode called Change of Life. Once all the TV people go back to work, there's a mad scramble to reschedule all the programs, and because, of course, Change of Life has had no pre-filming done and it's the studio-bound one, it's just very quietly dropped. But I've talked enough now, so... Oh, look, I'm simply going to say that I think it's a very strong season. As I say, it's my favourite season. There's a lot of very good episodes in here. Probably only one that I would say I have much of a problem with, and we'll get to that in a number of weeks' time. But it's got, as I say, two, if not three, of my favourite episodes in it. And I just think it's really strong. I think the narrative particularly is very strong. They're just not worried about whether it works or not. They're just going to do it and see what happens. And 
pressure seems to be off them in some ways. Just quickly to put this season in a little bit more context, given they've been off for two years, there have been some changes, obviously, in the broader TV universe since then, most notable which is that they finally axed the black and white minstrel show, and shows like Love Thy Neighbour and that have also been quietly taken out and euthanised. But probably, and this really, I think, leads into a discussion on where the goodies will go from here. More importantly, we're now getting into the era of what's called alternative comedy. And in May 1979, the BBC commissioned not the nine o'clock news, which is generally heralded, I think, as being the vanguard of the alternative comedy shows. Certainly was the stepping stone for the start of that group that headlined it. Well, it introduces us to Pamela Stevenson and Rowan Atkinson. And Mel Smith and... Um, Griff uh, Jones. Jones. Yeah. And, and uh, Chris Langham as well. Yeah, and Billy Connolly has a cameo in it hmm. soon. Yeah, but you're also seeing Kenny Everett's done a lot more stuff on television. Yes. You're going to see Ben Alton and Richard Curtis writing for television very shortly. Well, you are, because the other thing that happened is alternative comedy has now really started to explode because you had the opening of the Comedy Store in 1979 as well, which again introduces us to people like Alexi Sale and Rick Mayle and Aid Edmondson, Ben Elton, among others. French and Saunders. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so it's all there. And of course they then, and we're getting a little ahead, but they then of course start to transition into television. Yeah, which I think we'll probably cover more when we get to the next series. Yes. But yeah, definitely the goodies now are probably, well, I mean, they've been going for 11 years now in terms of calendar years. Yes. Yeah. So they are starting to look a little bit old. Well, and so have they stepped up their game at this point? that they know that they're having to compete with something else. I suppose it's taken traditional comedy and pushed it aside, so the goodies are still a little bit traditional, and they're um, 40 years old. Yes, so in the light of something like Not the Nine O'Clock News and some of the shows we'll start to see, they probably do start to look a little safe. And well, the stuff that was edgy back in 1970 is no longer edgy. Mm. I mean, we mentioned a few weeks ago that back then, in their first episode, there was trouble because Bill was getting high off a lemon sherbet. But Oh, how innocent we were. <laughs> yeah, by the time we get to Black and White Beauty, you know, Graham can smoke a joint on screen. Mm-hmm. And indeed, in Goody's Rule, okay, the police can smoke joints on screen. So stuff that was edgy back then just, frankly, is run of the mill. So, Rob, where do you think they are with this final BBC series? Well, you can see that there's definitely an evolution in their approach. As you said earlier, Richard, they're clearly moving into more satire. I mean, this set of episodes you know, demonstrate that. I know we've said earlier on that the show had reached a high point, I think, at the end of Series 5, I think you were saying. I think that they maintain that level going, you know, from that point onwards, more or less. Look, I think the main point to make is that a lot of TV series do start to fall off very much by the time they're getting into, you know, an eighth season, if they get an eighth season. Eight years is a pretty good run for a comedy series. Exactly, and the fact that this is full of very good episodes, I think, is just testament to how good the goodies were. Yes. Hmm. One other thing that happened between Series 7 and Series 8 is this is really the period where the idea of a goodies movie, I think, is finally put to bed once and for all. I think we've talked about it a bit during the show. They'd been interested in a goodies movie as far back, I think, it's about Series 2 or Series 3. And they'd had a few goes at trying to get the finance up to make one. To this point, they'd all fallen through. Along with stuff like the goodies stage shows, there was actually Palatoy the toy company in one of their trade catalogues actually had a mock-up of a goodies board game that they were hoping to float to retailers in 1977 or 78, which I think probably got lost in the tsunami of Star Wars toys. (laughs) There is one final flicker of interest in a goodies movie, and it comes from, of all people, Steven Spielberg. Really? Yes. He'd obviously seen... Because the goodies had been shown on some of the PBS stations in the US. He had moved into comedy. He released a movie called 1941. Yes, he did. 
this may have marked a move into comedy for him and his people rang the goodies and their agents to sound out whether they would be interested in discussing a movie deal with him. Of course, 1941 uh, wasn't that... It tanked massively. I was going to say perhaps wasn't that well received. By critics or viewers. And no, there was never a follow-up phone call. (laughs) (laughs) Just one quick note. They did actually write a script for one of the earlier attempts. The first half of it is really how the goodies met. I won't go through blow by blow, but Graham was a vet uh, initially before he joined the goodies, which allowed obviously lots of fake animal cruelty gags. Bill was a not very good children's clown, I think called Silly Billy, and Tim was actually a fashion designer. And how they met was he had designed the costumes for the British Olympic team and was delivering them to the British Olympic Committee. And this obviously is, you can see this in a kick in the arts. They reuse that scene where he goes in and there's a room full of people, all the older people, and they go right back to Sparta and 362 BC or whatever it is. So he then sees the state of the British Olympic thing and decides, well, he'll go out and raise money for it, which obviously again is reused in a kick in the arts. And that's where he meets the other two. And then they then set up the goodies. And then the second half of the film, I don't know if they ever actually scripted that, but apparently it was something to do with the millionaire recluse Howard Hughes. So there you go. This really, I think, is the final time a goodies movie is ever mentioned. Interesting. Which brings us to the end of this episode, which I think we've all enjoyed, or some more than others, but I think it's a good fun one. Next week, we will be back with arguably a more iconic episode, and that is Saturday Night Grease. And while you strut your way to the local discotheque, why don't you take a walk in the Black Forest? You've been listening to the Goodies Pirate Podcast, the Australian podcast that puts the good in goodies. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode or your thoughts on upcoming episodes. So please drop us a line by email at pirategoodiespc at gmail.com. Send us a tweet at at pirategoodiespc or find us on Facebook at facebook.com stroke pirategoodiespc. Goodies, goody, goody, yum, yum. She can do it. I know she can. She deserves to. But will the people vote for her? Because she's a woman. Is that it, Tina? Oh, Marge, it's so unfair. I could weep. Oh, Tina, so could I. (laughs) Don't cry for me, Marge and Tina.